It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Kalush Orchestra, a Ukrainian folk rap group, won this year's Eurovision contest. But instead of displaying their trophy, they auctioned it off to buy drones for Ukraine's army, just one of many examples of crowdfunding in this war. And only the most accomplished pianists tackle the works of Rachmaninoff, and only the more daring of those would pick Piano Concerto Number no. 3. Yet an 18-year-old Korean virtuoso has found new depths in it during a prize-winning recent performance. But first... After weeks of will-she-won't-she, the Speaker of America's House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, second in line to the presidency, arrived in Taiwan yesterday. Today, she met with President Tsai Ing-wen. Today, our delegation, which I'm very proud, came to Taiwan to make unequivocally clear we will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan and we are proud of our enduring friendship. It was the highest level visit from an American official in a quarter century. As promised, China, which claims sovereignty over the island, reacted furiously to the visit, positioning amphibious tanks on a beach facing Taiwan even as Ms. Pelosi arrived. Foreign Minister Wang Yi called the visit an outright farce. Under the guise of democracy, he said, the U.S. is infringing on China's sovereignty. Beyond the rhetoric, China lined up plenty of economic sanctions and military plans, including live-fire military drills starting on Thursday in six areas all around Taiwan. It's a tricky time, to put it mildly, to be provoking China and President Xi Jinping, who's looking for an unprecedented third term in office later this year. But with all the back and forth in America ahead of the visit, it's equally tricky to work out the country's broader China strategy. Well, in some ways, you know, the trip is not unprecedented or a disruption to the status quo in that a Speaker of the House has visited before. That was back in 1997 when Newt Gingrich was the Speaker. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. What's different now and why it's causing so much concern is that China is obviously a lot stronger now. It does have the capability to respond militarily in more effective ways than it did back then. And probably the other key difference is that you have Xi Jinping in power. He's embraced this very aggressive form of nationalism at home. He's made reunification with Taiwan a key part of his goal of national rejuvenation. And he's just a few months away from a party congress at which he's expected to win a third term as the party leader. So it's a very sensitive political period for China. So why make the trip then? What is Mrs. Pelosi's real goal here, do you think? 
Our goal appears to be to reaffirm America's commitment to Taiwan. It's a complicated relationship in that when the United States established diplomatic ties with Beijing, it recognized Beijing as the legitimate government of China and acknowledged China's position that Taiwan was part of that country. At the same time, the U.S. maintains unofficial relations with Taiwan, which includes regular visits by congressional delegations and sometimes U.S. officials. And the U.S. also is committed by law to help Taiwan to defend itself. That's under something called the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. So Pelosi has really emphasized the importance of supporting Taiwan as a democracy in a world that, as she puts it, is increasingly defined by the struggle between democracy and autocracy. But there are a lot of voices in the US who think this is just sort of grandstanding by Pelosi as she prepares to step down, most likely as the Speaker of the House. She's long been an an advocate of human rights in China. And there had been lots of threats from China to retaliate in some way if Mrs. Pelosi went ahead with this trip. What's happened so far? In advance of the trip, China said that its military would not sit idly by. China unleashed a series of very strong statements from senior officials denouncing the U.S. move, calling the United States the biggest wrecker of peace in the Taiwan Strait, and saying that the Americans had violated their agreements with China over Taiwan. Then, since she arrived, we've seen a series of measures, including economic ones. China has imposed bans on 100 Taiwanese companies, preventing them from exporting their goods to China. We've seen a ban on exports of sand from China to Taiwan. That's important for the construction industry and for semiconductors. But most significantly, soon after Ms. Pelosi arrived in Taiwan, we saw an announcement of very large-scale military drills in several areas around Taiwan, starting from yesterday, building up to on August 4th, by which time she will have left Taiwan, live fire drills in six zones all around Taiwan, effectively sort of encircling it. And in some cases, in areas that overlapping with what Taiwan claims as its territorial waters, those drills could include, though it's not 100% clear, the firing of missiles over the island of Taiwan. A lot of analysts expect China's response to sort of unfold over a long period of time, could be weeks, could be months, could be even years. So it's very hard to say when exactly this will blow over. And how has this whole affair been viewed in America so far? Well, it's caused a lot of controversy, both within the administration and amongst experts who follow China and Taiwan. The visit was originally announced back in April, or at least that's when Pelosi was originally expected to make it as part of a broader Asia tour. She had to delay that because she got COVID. And then news that she was sort of reactivating the trip leaked a few weeks back. And there was a sort of moment when President Biden was asked about it, and he rather pointedly said that the U.S. military did not think it was a good idea at the moment. He said he was sort of unsure of the status, but that sort of very much gave the impression that the White House was opposed to the idea, but was kind of sort of shifting the blame for that onto the U.S. military. But it does seem that there's been certainly a difference of opinion between Pelosi's office and the White House. And it is a very controversial time to be doing this, not least because the U.S. is obviously preoccupied with the war in Ukraine 
and China's support for Russia over Ukraine is, you know, one key sort of element of that. So there's an argument that maybe it's not the right time to provoke China. But what does it tell you that there are different parts of the administration that seem to have a different view here? I think there is an argument to be made that the White House has not done a good job of getting its messaging right on Taiwan. There's been a lot of confusion, particularly about public statements from the president. He has on, I think, three occasions said that the U.S. would defend Taiwan, which sort of goes beyond the commitments made in the Taiwan Relations Act and seems to sort of abandon previous adherence to an approach that's called sort of strategic ambiguity, where basically the U.S. government doesn't make it clear in what scenario it would or wouldn't intervene militarily. But the confusion around this is often derived from the fact that after Biden's made these statements, his aides have then sort of walked them back and say, actually, no, that's not what the president meant. He meant something different and he's not changing policy in any way. So this visit only adds to that confusion, no? Yes, it does in a way, but I think particularly because it appeared that the White House uh, wasn't on board with Pelosi's trip, but then they tried to sort of shift responsibility for that onto the, onto the military. So that just left everyone a bit confused about what the U.S. government's position was. It also feeds into this idea that the current U.S. administration's approach to Taiwan is really just sort of provoking China without bringing any real benefits to Taiwan in terms of actually enhancing its ability to defend itself and to withstand economic and, and diplomatic pressure. And to that end, then, how has Ms. Pelosi's visit been received in Taiwan, which is now under these threats? Well, in general, she's been given a very warm welcome. And there have been warm words from various figures in Taiwan's government and political elite. But I do think there's some consternation amongst people in Taiwan about what exactly they're getting out of this. And it was interesting in the press conference that Pelosi gave with Taiwan's president earlier today, one of the few questions that the press got to ask her was, you know, Taiwan's already paying a cost for your visit economically and militarily. What do you think the island is getting out of it? And she sort of dodged the question, really. She spoke about the CHIPS Act, a sort of new law that's been passed that does have implications for Taiwan's semiconductor industry. But she didn't specifically cite any real benefits that will come from her visit. So what's the long-run view here? How will this visit be viewed once the, the, the current fury or delight dies down? So I think the longer-term significance of this is that it will really cause China to ratchet up the pressure on Taiwan on every front, militarily, economically, and diplomatically. And then the question will be, how does the U.S. respond to that? And to what extent can it provide more material support as well as this symbolic political support? So that means more weapon sales, different types of weapons that would be more effective, the kind of portable systems that have been so effective in Ukraine, but also more in terms of training and other forms of economic support for Taiwan. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Private citizens have chipped in to help in times of war for centuries. A writing tablet found near Hadrian's Wall in northern England mentions a gift of sandals, socks, and underwear for Roman soldiers. During the First World War, America's government asked civilians to knit warm clothing for troops. The war in Ukraine is no exception. All through the history of warfare, soldiers on the front line have received gifts from home. But in this war, we're seeing something slightly different. We're seeing it being stepped up quite a number of notches. David Hambling writes about technology for The Economist. Donors are now supplying troops on the front line with a certain amount of high-tech gear. In particular, drones are very popular gifts. And the Ukrainians, as well as some Russian forces, are actually asking donors to supply them with gifts. And there are lots of pictures on social media of them opening boxes of new electronic goodies that they've received. And what kind of electronics are they receiving? So far, a lot of the gifts which they're asking for have been drones and thermal images. Many of the drones are the small ones, which are just a few hundred dollars, but some of them are more significant. The Kalush Orchestra, who won the Eurovision Song Contest, actually auctioned off their trophy in order to buy drones for the Ukrainian military. They raised about $900,000, so what they're buying are these big PD-2 drones, which are used for artillery observation. There's some Ukrainian businessmen. They donated some German drones, which are also about $200,000 apiece. We see lots of examples of donors who are chipping in, particularly from the Ukrainian diaspora, to provide high-tech gear for the front line. And is it just high-tech gear being donated? On the Ukrainian side, that's very much what they have a shortage of. So that's what they're looking for. Because of the intensity of combat, drones in particular get lost at a very high rate. The average drone only lasts about a month. So they're continually needing a supply of them. And the official supply chains aren't that fast and efficient. Whereas you can go onto a fundraiser and actually get someone to send you what you need within a matter of days. So that actually turns out to be quite an efficient way of getting them the kit they need where they need it. And I've heard there's some more creative fundraising happening too. Yeah, there's a site called Sign My Rocket, and it's a fundraising effort, which in return for making a donation, they will allow you to write a message on an artillery shell that gets fired at Russian soldiers. You can put your name on an artillery shell or a rocket or a grenade dropped from a drone, or you can even have your name or your message printed on the side of a tank. The money from that is then being used to buy radios, thermal images, Uh, and other gear for the artillery. And they're now also looking at providing ear protectors as well. It's an interesting way to raise funds. And what about on the Russian side? What's being donated there? On the Russian side, superficially, it looks quite similar because we've got pictures of Russian soldiers on the front line receiving boxes of thermal images and drones and rifle sights and similar gear. But when you dig a bit deeper, you see there's also quite a lot of much more basic equipment there. And it turns out that uh, a lot of this is being supplied by groups organised on social media. Generally, these are from the Russian mothers of soldiers who are fighting. Initially, they were supplying them with the obvious things like clothes and 
and food and the things that mothers always sent. But in the last few months, they have stepped up and now they're having to supply things like body armour and drones again, but also things like medical equipment, because there are apparently quite a few shortages of basic items. And are these donations having a real impact on the war? If you are a soldier on the front line and what you really need is a pair of binoculars or a thermal imager or indeed some medical supplies, then that makes a huge difference to you. Whether it makes a difference to the war as a whole, you're talking fairly small scale, particularly on the Russian side. It's literally a sticking plaster over some basic procurement problems. The Russian military has certainly focused on providing things like tanks and artillery that look good in parades but there do seem to be serious shortages of actual essentials for people on the front line, and that's what the mothers are now working to supply. On the Ukrainian side, all the additional drones and electronics are all very handy, and they're certainly timely, but overall you're talking a drop in the bucket compared to the sort of help you get from governments. The Ukrainian military budget was about $6 billion. America so far has given over $20 billion worth of military assistance. Compared to that, all the crowdfunding is uh, fairly small potatoes. But of course, it does also serve another function as well, particularly on the Ukrainian side. It's about involving foreign donors and making people feel a part of the war. And in terms of that, I think it's been extremely successful at spreading the message and getting people to be engaged with this long and costly war. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. is a gorgeously melodic, very romantic piece with all these moody Slavic tunes, which return in different guises over what becomes a real roller coaster emotional journey. Vivian Schweitzer writes about culture for The Economist. For those who aren't piano buffs, when I refer to Rack 3, I'm always referring to Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3. And at times, it's almost too much. It's like you're being taken to the edge of a precipice. It's too intense. There's too much angst. But you don't get vertigo because there's a respite in the piece's many moments of solitude and introspection. Rack 3 is incredibly virtuosic throughout. Although the composer does at least allow the pianist to warm up a bit. It starts with this beautiful, simple melody And then almost 40 minutes later, towards the very end of the final movement, there's a section where the pianist's hands careen up and down the keys, and it sounds like a horse galloping dangerously fast towards a huge jump. And you're really always on the edge of your seat. It's an absolutely thrilling, spine-tingling climax. One recent performance that absolutely stunned the music world was the performance by Lim Yun Chan at the Van Cliburn competition. His performance wowed everyone, firstly because it was very emotional and expressive, which is exactly what you want in this piece. Because Rack 3 is not a piece where you want a cold and calculated middle-of-the-road approach. He's technically phenomenal, and I really heard details I've never heard before. Also, we have to keep in mind that this pianist is only 18 years old, 
which is in itself just absolutely remarkable that someone so young can play with such maturity and such profundity and just really convey the emotional arc of this piece. There's long been a debate in the music world that you have to be a certain age or you have to have lived a certain amount of time. You have to so have, so to speak, life experience before you tackle pieces like late Beethoven string quartets or the late Schubert piano sonatas. Some music aficionados think that because there's certain pieces which are kind of universally acknowledged to have a real profundity to them, a real depth, that it's somehow not considered fitting that, say, you know, a 15-year-old makes his or her debut recital playing these works. It's the type of thing that you have to have earned your stripes. In a sense, perhaps you could say, you know, a teenager wouldn't generally be hired to play King Lear because even if they could memorize the lines and put on makeup and a wig, you wouldn't think that they have the life experience and the maturity to convey the depth and pathos of that kind of role. There are a lot of technicians out there, but I would say there are far fewer artists. Rachmaninoff was a composer, conductor, and pianist, and he completed this concerto in 1909 and gave its premiere in New York at the start of a successful American concert tour that year, having practiced on a cardboard keyboard during the long voyage from Russia to the U.S. Rachmaninoff was very proudly Russian, and this piece is full of Slavic influences. Rachmaninoff is sometimes called the last romantic because he continued on this tradition of Russian romanticism. As a pianist myself, I would never dare to perform this piece because I'm quite sure that I could not do it justice, both the technique and just for some of the reasons we've mentioned before. So I'd prefer to leave it in the hands of all the wonderful, wonderful world-class musicians out there who really can play it so wonderfully. listening to it because it really does take me on a journey. And I think that's why I particularly loved listening to Lim Yun-chan's performance because I found it absolutely engrossing. And it's just such a voyage through so many different emotions with the spine-tingling finale. And I imagine that since the video now has almost six million views, which is not bad for a classical music performance, I'm guessing that Rack 3 also undoubtedly has a lot of new fans as well. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business... 
to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.